My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is the Return to Embodiment. In my conversation today, I'm speaking with Susan Imus. Susan is an associate professor and former chair of the Department of Creative Arts Therapies in the School of Fine and Performing Arts at Columbia College, Chicago, where I was able to be a student and learn dance movement therapy and counseling and then eventually become part of the faculty and teach it. Susan has practiced, educated, and consulted in dance movement therapy and the creative arts throughout the U.S. and abroad for over 33 years. She's the former chair of education, research, and practice for the American Dance Therapy Association, and she has written a chapter called Creating Breeds Creating in a book edited by Hilda Wengrower and Sharon Shakelin called Dance and Creativity Within Dance Movement Therapy International Perspectives. In this chapter, Susan talks about establishing principles or laws for the field of dance movement therapy drawn from dance, an aesthetic, the body, and mechanisms of healing, and foundational principles in psychology. Susan writes about nine fundamental mechanisms that describe how DMT works. She also works to clarify a common set of beliefs and assumptions about why dance movement therapy works. In this conversation, Susan reflects back on the history of the field of dance movement therapy and how it has been taught as a lineage profession based on the wisdom and the intuition and the integration of these fields of the creative and the embodied and the psychological within the being of these mothers of dance movement therapy who may not have understood the mechanisms of what they were doing, but the impact was clear. For example, Marion Chase, although she didn't know about mirror neurons or the vagus nerve or the body's natural impulse towards healing and the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder had never even been created in her work with men who were coming back with shell shock. She found that doing dance with these men, group dance, was healing. So the mechanisms were mysterious. The techniques were driven by intuition and a deep implicit knowing. Yet Susan wants to bring the field into concretization and languaging of the basic phenomena, the basic principles and mechanisms that underlie the work in an effort to honor our history and also encompass and welcome more perspectives. And I'm so grateful for her vision and her guidance in my own path. I'm Kim Rothwell. And I'm welcoming you to the Return to Embodiment. So here we are with Susie Imus. And um, the way that I like to begin the podcast is by asking, how is embodiment to you? 
Well, I believe that um, embodiment and the creative arts therapies um, really means bringing form to our thoughts, feelings, sensations, memories, and how we bring that into explicit form. Um, with dance movement therapy, we use our body and that is the form. Um, I call that dynamic concretization. Um, and I have recently defined that as one of our fundamental mechanisms in um, our profession. Um, how did you come up with the phrase dynamic concretization? To be honest, um, I'm not sure. Concretization is a term that I learned when I was um, studying art therapy. Mm -hmm. And I studied um, and did a two-year um, graduate certification in the creative arts therapies at Drake University in Des Moines, which is where I grew up. And um, that program was run by an art therapist and she used the term concretization. So it's something that I've, um, I've applied in different ways throughout my professional career and as an educator. Um, and, um, you know, concrete is, is the form. And what we're trying to do is have a relationship with a form. Um, and that's how dynamic it's ever changing. Mm -hmm. So this is traced back to your, um, your early learning with dance, with uh, art therapists who have a very um, clear concretization process of idea to um, form in terms of a, an image or a sculpture um, and you're bringing it into the dance therapy world allowing the the movement that we do to express that underlying feeling sensation emotion giving it form yeah so carolyn moore talks about this when you take a picture in time of movement obviously it becomes static however we know the movement is dynamic you know it is always evolving and changing and yet we take that snapshot in time and space so that we actually then bring that awareness to our clients or our patients so that then we can have a relationship with that form to help the client or patient increase their awareness of their sensations, their um, feelings, their thoughts, their images. This actually is a term that become supported through the work of Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. And um, they say bringing concrete form and containment to sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts, which is the acronym SIFT that I use a lot, to gain objectivity in viewing one's own creation and forming a new perspective. There's something with dance therapy where it's it's lived it's not a it's not something that can be set aside 
Um, and I love art. So <laughs> the art that I've created, I have some pieces that I keep and I'm like, I remember that place that I was. Yes. I remember yes. that feeling or I remember that time of struggle or whatever. And it can bring me back there. But with movement, every time I enter into it, I have a different relationship with the embodiment. I believe that the concretization is in our work, the ability to replicate or, you know, as, as you say, to have an artifact of sorts, whether it's in the therapist reflecting back the movement that they really want to capture in time um, and or um, the intervention by the therapist that says, I saw you do this, which would be the reflection. And then let's go back to that. And can you replicate it? And it's almost like that replication then becomes the artifact by which then the patient has then a relationship with that clarification in time space so that you're immediately able to go back. The artifact holds the memory. The artifact immediately takes you back. And that's what I believe we do in dance movement therapy through our ability to capture, pick up what you know we're drawn to that we'd like the client to maybe continue to explore and or notice and bring focus to and bring their attention to. And that that then becomes, to use your term again, the artifact where then a third relationship happens in the therapeutic process where it's not any longer just the relationship between the um, patient and the therapist, but it's the relationship between the patient, the artifact, and the therapist. So that's one of the things that differentiates us significantly in um, the world of therapy from verbal therapists because there is a relationship with this creative process, with this creative product or this creative artifact. I've developed what I call nine different um, mechanisms in dance movement therapy. Aesthetic mutuality is what I consider the second mechanism and dynamic concretization is the third mechanism. And when those two come together, that is the aesthetic experience. Um, and the first mechanism then is obviously safety and risk-taking, but I, I've always been um, a little frustrated that we don't have like structure as a way to describe and talk about our work. So um, in this chapter that I wrote, I identified in there the nine mechanisms and um, those mechanisms are a part of um, and related to laws. Christine Caldwell has written a lot about our laws, so to speak, um, in movement and in somatic practice. And one of those you know, laws is um, oscillation, novelty, um, contrast through novelty. She also has um, feedback loops, um, energy conservation discipline. 
So those are our laws of sorts. Those are, those are laws in the natural world. Like she's drawing actually from science, right? Like that's the feedback yeah. loop for all demonstrated laws in the, um, the functioning of a body, for example. Yes. Yes. And so, um, we have laws in dance movement therapy that are both from science and as we know from psychology and art. And so um, I also talk about that and I, I got really interested in, his last name is Bechtel, B-E-C-H-T-E-L. And he said that laws in science pertain to matter and laws and psychology pertain to information. Hmm. And so we know matter exists in form through the body and its movement, while information exists in feelings, thought, images, and behaviors, the psychological content or story. Going back to kind of that example of being with a client and having a client a therapist notice a movement that's happening and reflecting it back to the client saying, when you said this, I don't know if you noticed, but you kind of shook your head and, and looked down. And I'm wondering if we could go back to that moment and perhaps slow it down, perhaps just what was that? Can you go back and, and move it again and feel what that movement meant? And in that process, there's both of what you're saying. There's the, there's the body, the somatic present and the held. Matter. And then there's also the story. There's yeah. also the meaning-making process. What we imbue... <laughs> the artifact with or the movement with. And I love this dynamic concretization and um, aesthetic mutuality piece that leads to the aesthetic experience. This is so such beautiful creation that you're doing of languaging around what's been done for years and years, because I'm very conscious that this field has a really rich, vibrant, um, lineage it's uh, it, the way that dance therapy had been has been taught for a very very long time is through lineage right for example you you worked with Trudy Shoup and and others um so that was the original transmission process of skills and what you're trying to do it sounds like is um, codify and, and articulate and kind of lay it out and connect it to different theories, both aesthetic and uh, biological and um, psychological. Yes, exactly. And we are talking about the laws. What I was um, starting to explain is how I came up with the nine mechanisms was, um, you know, mechanisms basically explain how the principles or laws work. And um, through Bechtel and reading about Bechtel, he talks about the component parts are what make up the mechanisms for us to understand how what's happening is actually creating transformation. 
And so, um, you know, some might call it change theory and, and I know that's, or factors, therapeutic factors. That's what Sabine um, Koch, she, she describes it as. Um, but I like the term um, mechanisms because then it helps us really drill down and understand what the component parts are. And, you know, our component parts, we obviously have, you know, specifically movement. And then, then that gets us into, well, how do we articulate movement? Because as we know, it's so transient. And then it's so, you know, imbued with culture. I've um, separated, you know, the aesthetic mutuality as the second mechanism into three different parts. And those three different parts start to look at what we call, um, these are the component parts, aesthetic sensibilities, you know, um, aesthetic preferences and aesthetic values. And um, the values start to look at our cultural determined beliefs. So aesthetic values form patterns of attraction and discriminating appreciation of specific qualities reflected in form. Um, so that would be at the highest level of cognitive uh, um, uh, astuteness. And then aesthetic preferences, um, you know, that's a little bit more complex responsiveness that, um, it's our way of like um, helping us understand like what our our favorite um, perceptual preferences are. And you might remember this from class in when I had you as a student, where you know I would ask you, you know, how do you know when you're with a client? You know, going back to that example of the patient that you're working with, and they look down into the floor. How are you perceiving that? So I would say to you as the therapist, how are you picking that up? You know, what is your sensory information process? Are you seeing it? Are you sensing, feeling it? Are you hearing it? Well, from your description, we obviously know you weren't hearing it. You saw it, but did you also feel it? Did you have a kinesthetic response? So that's what I mean um, by aesthetic preferences. It's our conscious awareness of a favored sensory information processing um, and their respective arrangement in perceptual forms. Um, and that's part of it. And then the most basic aesthetic sensibility is these are our sensibilities that are often rhythmically coordinated. They're patterns, signals, and calls, and their responses that are unmediated by thought. So if you're to look at this developmentally, aesthetic mutuality has, you know, at the more um, reflexive level, it's your aesthetic sensibilities. The um, perceptual level, it's aesthetic preferences. And then at the cognitive level, it's aesthetic values. So if we look at that in terms of culture, you can take and break all of that down and um, begin to understand um, from your cultural perspective, 
what your sensibilities, preferences, and values are. And those are things that then you can <clears throat> label, you can talk about. And I know we've really had in our, our profession some real concern that it's so Eurocentric and, and you know, there's bias from some of the founding few in our profession. And so I found this way that we can look at the relationship, the aesthetic mutuality, and break it down through those three um, component parts. So once again, I'm using that term component parts to go back and explain this mechanism. I know this is work that you have been doing for a long time, bringing languaging to what is perhaps ephemeral or you know intuitive or um, known by a skilled practitioner. And I, I love that you're also bringing in the languaging. Yeah. And you're giving tools or like inroads to be able to examine culture and how culture lives in the body. I tried to, you know, understand how what we do works. And that's the question that I went about trying to answer and how it works then to find some language that's already out there that we can borrow and utilize as dance movement therapists to very consciously articulate our work in a way that one, we all can agree on as a profession and two, then we can talk to our colleagues. I'm curious for you, if we were to go back in time to when embodiment as and this is this is how I understood your your definition, and so it might not be right. So feel free to correct me. Um, as a embodiment, as sort of an opportunity to relate to the creative process of making a movement and what that means. Where did your sense of this embodiment begin in in your life? Where did you first experience it? Well, yes, the creative process is a strong part of it. But where did I first learn about embodiment? And I'll just go with the very first thing that jumped into my mind when you asked me that question. And that is um, from my play as a child. And um, I was crazy about horses as a little girl. And I had a horse club and... Um, I even had, uh, at one point, I think I counted and I had 80 figurines of horses. Um, I just loved horses. And so um, when I was really little, I'd always play as if I was a horse. And so I, I would run through my grandmother's yard. She had a very, well, what at the time felt like a very large yard. However, as I returned to it as an adult, I saw it wasn't so large at all, um, which tells you I was quite young when I would play in her backyard and I would go in and out of the peony bushes. And um, she had all sorts of stone like um, pathways and little fences and things um, all made out of stone that almost looked like, you know, the hurdles in jumping um, in equestrian competition. 
And um, so I would become the horse, you know, I wouldn't be the rider, I'd be the horse. And so I was embodying, you know, the beauty of the horse that I loved to watch. And at that time, I hadn't ridden very much at all as a little girl. So, um, but I imagined what it was like to, to have and be that horse. So, you know, that was the symbolization um, when I think about it now, you know, of freedom and of, once again, of beauty, of speed. I like to run fast and I love to jump. And when I um, was in ballet class, then um, I loved grand jetés and um, ballon. So my teachers always said, you have very good ballon, which means spring, you know, it's and like- You said, that's because I'm a horse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that's what comes to mind when you first ask me <laughs> about embodiment. Um, and uh, yeah. I but, you I know- I love it because it feels like a grounding. It well, feels I also like a, like a developmental grounding of joy, mm-hmm. and aesthetic, and well, and, and also connection to environment, grandmother, nature, nature. Yeah. I took character dance, oh, for at least six or seven years in my life, and I I studied character dance um, pretty extensively. Um, and interestingly enough, I studied character dance through my dance teacher in Des Moines, but she had studied with Bentley Stone and Walter Cameron in Chicago. And so um, uh, Walter Cameron was um, a brilliant character dancer. So I learned circle dances from Walter Cameron when I was like 15. And we'd come to Chicago to study and we would take on different rhythms and we'd do these different dances in the circle, the mazurka, the tarantella, the lindler or something like that. He would talk a little bit about, you know, the culture um, and where it came from, but um, he also did a lot with expression through the culture. And um, so it was character dance is like dance drama. And I've always had an interest in uh, both dance and drama. Now I'm teaching in the theater department a lot more um, than I ever, ever anticipated I would. Um, And I'm really enjoying that and helping the students bring to life characters um, through expression and movement. Um, Oh, I can only imagine how useful your experience and knowledge of movement in the body, especially with Laban, to be able to specify the details of creation of a character? Well, it's fun because, you know, I teach them, you know, the connectivities and then they have to create a warm up with it. And then we have that as a ritual through the class. But then they have to start by moving as an animal. No surprise, because my whole embodiment started as moving as an animal. And um, not that I tell them that, but um, so they 
take that connectivity that, you know, is related to the development and they have to create a scene for that animal and have to move as that animal. Um, and there again, that's a perfect example of, you know, the dynamic concretization matter and the story coming together. Um, yeah. And the, you know what that makes me think about is the cultures all over the world where there was such close relationship to the animals. And so dances very often were inspired by mimicking, embodying the spirits of the animals. That's true. Yeah. I'm thinking of some Australian Aboriginal um, movements too. Yeah. I am continually drawn back to this global sense of connection to, you know, like this inheritance is, uh, it's a global dance is a global power. It's a global force. And the things that we're finding and, and articulating are something that have connections into all, all these other parts of the world and, and parts of culture. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm, I feel really honored that I got to write this chapter in the book, which is International Perspectives. And, you know, being a dance movement therapy educator, I, I've been um, fortunate to, you know, attend um, on a monthly basis, the international educators that are getting together from all around the world. And there's about 50 people that come together um, and are meeting now. So international relationships, um, cultural exchanges, um, you know, that's, I think, a lot of the direction that our discipline is going. Um, And, you know, we were lucky in our department due to our students um, calling to our attention, you know, our lack of perhaps sensitivity to the needs of, you know, uh, the BIPOC student, you know, we did this work to try and be more inclusive with and be more cognizant um, of the aesthetic sensibilities and perceptions and values of our different students. Now it's happening everywhere. It's not only happening, um, I think naturally, it's now being required um, as a step through the changing standards of education that were brilliantly created over the past three years where culture is predominant. I'm trying to, like you say, codify some language we can use So by looking at the laws or the principles, our mechanisms, then we look at our beliefs. And I have a whole, um, almost a whole page in this book about some of our underlying beliefs. But beliefs are assumptions in their core concepts and their philosophies. They're not necessarily like laws, which laws tend to be proven, although not all of them are, you know, (laughs) empirically um, studied, but um, we have these shared beliefs that we have to be able to articulate when we talk to other professionals and students. And yet we also have to own that these are beliefs and these are shared beliefs in our culture of dance movement therapy. 
And, um, you know, how do we talk about what our beliefs are if they haven't ever been, you know, contained? And so one of the things I did is I, you know, I, I don't even know how many are on this list. I never even counted them, but it's a way to start so that other dance movement therapists can then add to these. And I know like our founding few, they each had a few of those beliefs that were strongly articulated. And that's what, you know, dance movement therapy theory one is. It's their beliefs and that's narrowed our vision and we continue to replicate those beliefs and have not really expanded them so that we contain all of them together as a profession. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is to lay the groundwork for the language of all of this so that then everybody can just take it and add on and can reference it back and know, oh, I'm talking about beliefs here, philosophies and assumptions. And those beliefs relate to these mechanisms and these laws that I'm using in my interventions to work with a specific client or patient. So I hope that people will appreciate this work I know it's it's not perfect. I feel like what I've tried to do is, you know, start this structure so that we have something to to you know push up against or to to once again clarify some consistency in what's happening with the spread of our profession, but also be able to relate it back and to have a common language and communication opportunity, not only here in the United States, but then with my colleagues, my international colleagues. Our students in the past from Columbia College have complained, well, I can't relate to Blanche Evan. I can't relate to Trudy Shoup. You know, I can't relate to, you know, this European improvisation dance theater that Trudy did in all of her character dances, which is one of the reasons I was drawn to her. And one of the reasons I very was very fortunate to get to work with Trudy, um, I worked with Trudy for uh, a full week, um, over 30 hours. And, you know, I felt like, you know, what Trudy presented, some of it was new to me, but some of it was also a continuation of the study that I had with Walter Cameron when I um, did character dance with him on Madison Avenue in Chicago, Illinois. So, um, you know, um, finding language to broaden not just one perspective, but a shared perspective is what I, I'm trying to do. I appreciate your your honesty about the process of creating language, that sometimes language, when we use it, it creates a form that needs to evolve over time, but we need to start somewhere is the idea. I'm hearing you say like, let's start somewhere with scaffolding, scaffolding for the field that offers um, theory that encompasses the, the wisdom and the knowledge and the expertise of these mothers of dance therapy who were doing something that was healing. They articulated it in their own 
ways, each of them. And they also recognized, wait, we're doing something similar because of this, because of dance, because this is our grounding in the art of dance. There's going to be growing pains where we can, <laughs> we can hold it all and we can continue to evolve our language based on how it's used um, as well as theory. One of the things that um, I use a lot is your SMIFT. Did you, did, I know that SIFT, I know that SIFT is a Daniel Siegel thing, but SMIFT and like that, that inclusion of movement itself is something that I teach. And I always say like, Susan, I must added it to, to Daniel Siegel's work, but yeah. I don't know if you've ever written about it, but that is an incredibly yeah. useful um useful languaging of what we're looking for as clinicians, the sensations, the movement, the imagery, the feelings and the thoughts. I lived in Boston for nine years after I went to Antioch um, for my degree in dance movement therapy. Um, I worked um, at Harvard Community Health Plan and I also worked at McLean Hospital. I worked with the Irene Dowd it was back in the 80s. It was when John Kabat-Zinn was labeling mindfulness and he was doing wellness out in Framingham. You know, we looked at any symptom, you know, whether chronic or acute in anybody um, that could be anxiety. It could be, um, you know, stomach pain. It could be back pain, any, any of that. We would always break it down and look at that symptom from what is the physical sensation of that symptom? What is the um, thoughts in relationship to that symptom? What are your feelings in relationship to that? What is your behavior in relationship to that? So we looked at, just like what Bechtel said, the information in relationship to the matter. And there again, it was the story, the psychological story with the physical symptom or matter, and then how those came together and how you could choose to change your story by changing behavior, changing your movements, changing all of those things that you had control over. So when I read, you know, SIFT from Daniel Siegel, I'm like, that's not new. You know, I was doing that back in the 80s with these brilliant people from Harvard, and yet none of them really talked about the movement. And I brought the movement in back then when we were looking at chronic pain. Like, how has that physical symptom of your back pain changed your movement? And that has changed your behavior. So, um, absolutely. You know, I think pain is such a challenge to work with for a lot of dance therapists because having pain in the body is just is just so hard and so if i drop my awareness into the body maybe that's the loudest voice that i can find and then that triggers my depression worse yeah speaking how it connects to my emotions and my thoughts it's never going to get better i'm always going to be unable to do what i would like to do this is a very, very important place for us to talk about the work of pain management. Well, I, I, I really feel SMIFT is 
then there again, the mechanism we'd work with. Smith is the dynamic concretization that you've created in relationship to this physical symptom. And that's what we'd work on. And so, you know, an example is, you know, a pain creature or a statue of the body of pain. And you then through dynamic concretization would show how the sensations and all of that, you bring that to life. You create form of that actual pain. And then what your patient or client would do would be to analyze it through the sensations, the images, the movement, the feelings and thoughts. And then as they can start to feel, sense and see that sculpture that they've embodied shift, you know, then they can also prescribe what needs to happen or be done to actually change it further. And then one of the last things in my mechanisms is to look at the integration of the story, the integration, coherence, and meaning making. That's really our last kind of level in this work. And so then they can take what they've created through dynamic, dynamic concretization and apply it to their lives. And once again, by having embodied it, shape and form of their pain, then they have some distance and detachment from it, even if it's momentarily in the creative process, then that becomes the motivation that says, if you can make it, you can change it and you can control it. And a lot of chronic pain is feeling out of control because they don't feel like they have any control. I worked with chronic pain for about 13 years and <clears throat> I, um, I really, I don't want to say enjoy it, but I get it. And I, you know, I worked with a, a really talented group, a psychiatrist named um, Leslie Fisherman and the psychologist Hyman Kempler. And um, I learned so much from them and I, I see some of what I learned from them in you know, how I'm working now and how I'm languaging what I do. And so back to where we started this conversation about chronic pain, the SIFT or what I now call SMIFT hasn't been new to me since the eighties. You know, that was 40 years ago. Yeah, oh, I'm dating myself. New in the sense that the the languaging of it is new. The languaging of it in a in a um in a concrete way to be able to talk about the smith, right? And then all of a sudden it becomes more accessible, teachable. Yes, yes. It can so, be something that's kind of like just in your head as you're working. And I'm I'm thinking so often when there is pain physical locking up around it mm -hmm. and the sensation of that attempt to control mm -hmm. right those the, it's all it's all attempts to control something that feels so out of control yeah. and um how much what it looks like to soften allow maybe a moment of of um letting the musculature go just to see what happens. Um, yeah, I also believe you have to truly um, go through the pain to understand it. And so what you're talking about is pain behavior. And um, some of the pain behavior is the defense or protection around it. And there's a term for that, but it's the, the um, armoring. 
Yes, thank you. It's like an armoring. That's what we work with. We work with the armoring of the pain. We concretize that in a way that, once again, um, the client can have an aesthetic sense of control. And then by taking that aesthetic experience and breaking it down and seeing how that could be applied to their everyday life to, to once again, give them that sense of control, which you're describing is so overpowering, it can help reduce the bother that the pain has in their lives. Um, but I did, you said, did I write about Smift? There is a book review I did, and it's in the, um, the American Journal of Dance Therapy. And it's the book review on one of Siegel's books, um, The Whole Brain Child. Mm -hmm. And then um, I'm just introducing the M or the movement to the SIFT. So it's SMIFT. And it's in that article. Um, oh, okay. I'll, I'll look for that. I didn't know that that was ever published anywhere. You're kind of a visionary um, because you also write about the, uh, the scope of practice. Yeah, I call it, you know, it's the continuum of interdisciplinary approaches. I've, I've broken that down into the therapeutic approach, the aesthetic approach, the recreational approach, the educational approach, the rehabilitative approach, and the psychotherapeutic approach. And, you know, so often um, dance movement therapists will say, well, I didn't do dance therapy. I just did all education. Well, sometimes you have to do education, whether it's about the body's mechanics or whether it's about some psychoeducation. But we always bring in our educational approach it back to the body. Dance movement therapists have to understand that we do have you know, this array of approaches that we have to take to be truly, you know, patient-centered or client-centered. And it's often dependent on the institution where you work and their, and their philosophy and their mission statement and their methodologies. So this, once again, is that inclusiveness of approaches that we need to honor as dance movement therapists, not diminish the creative process in us sliding around that continuum helps make us the artists that we are as dance movement therapists you know i might be at one moment you know um talking about self-esteem to a you know to an adolescent young woman and in the next minute i might be working with her posture and teaching her how to plie and how to feel the through line and feel the lengthening through the body. So, you know, I'm going from both a psychoeducation approach to a dance approach, you know, and then I might have her take that, that new posture and practice walking through the hallways, which will become a rehabilitative approach, or it might become a dance. And then if it becomes a dance, it's an aesthetic approach and maybe it's the dance of the marionette, you know, that falls sometimes, but then the marionette remembers that through line and remembers that verticality, they need to have the good posture. And so we need to be able to have that um, flexibility and adaptability in our approaches 
to meet the client's um, needs, um, wherever they may be, in whatever context they may, may be, with whatever symptoms that they're having. And there isn't one size fits all. So when my students used to say, I wasn't doing dance movement therapy, I'm like, wait a minute, you were doing dance movement therapy. Because it didn't look like Marion Chase. Right. Because some right. some some students feel like, well, it's supposed to look like a dynamic dance group. And if it doesn't, then it's not dance therapy. But what you're what you're offering is kind of this, you said array. It's not a spectrum. It's like a uh smorgasbord of yeah. <laughs> options that are accessible to someone who's trained in dance therapy in terms of intervention options. There's also many of us in this field who have specialties in one of those places. And that's also something that it would, you know, it would behoove us as a field to say, we're claiming and celebrating our dance teachers who are doing this important wellness work. And we are claiming and celebrating the people who are doing the work of rehabilitation and, and brain injury and are, uh, are bringing dance and movement into healing in those spaces. And then education. There are dance therapists who are moving the work forward and crafting creatively around designs to serve whatever population they're working with. I think I really appreciate this because what you're talking about is individual flexibility, but also it feels also like a, a, a call to the field to say, hey, this work can manifest in lots of different ways and it needs to, <laughs> it, it really needs to now. Yeah, and I think, you know, that relates to that question of vision you've asked, like this is that, attempt of an inclusiveness of all of our work in a scaffolding in way we can describe it. So, you know, one thing we haven't talked about are methods or theories and approaches. And what I'm describing to you are that different interdisciplinary approaches and methods, and then understanding within those methods, how they relate to the fundamental mechanisms and the laws. So in the chapter I wrote, I actually added the teaching method that um, Lenore and I created years ago. I call it affect. And the A stands for aesthetics. The F stands for functional movement. The E stands for expressive movement. The C stands for communicative movement. And the T stands for transformation or the meaning making in the application to the real world. And so um, my personal then method, once again, educating students about the different, what I call substances or component parts of movement that are part of the dynamic concretization are articulated in my methodology. And once again, my methodology is my methodology. I own that, but what I'm saying to all of us in the profession is then see how your methodology with its beliefs and its assumptions fits into the mechanisms and the underlying laws. 
Now we don't have enough written on the laws or the, the underlying principles. And, you know, Caldwell's book on bodyfulness is, is brilliant in looking at that. The language I'm using is that a law is a principle. And so that is the underlying work we tap into. The mechanisms are how then the laws work and then our methods and our beliefs and assumptions are your personal framework. So it gets personal at the framework level, but we need to understand the mechanism and law level to be able to show how we contribute into this work of, you know, health and healing. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm looking forward to reading your article. Uh, Just, just listening to you talk about the principles and the laws, I'm thinking about human development and the, um, the need for both interpersonal and movement as laws. Those are laws for a baby, for a child to grow. There needs to be interpersonal interaction. Otherwise they don't thrive. They need movement. If they're constricted from moving, moving, they actually do not develop. And same with nourishment, the very, very earliest point where there are these natural laws in terms of development, but those are some of the foundation of what our work is. The reason for bringing up those things is I'm thinking about the laws, right? Like the law of thermodynamics. What are the laws that we know? Like the law of entropy, things move towards less order. This isn't cultural. It isn't cultural for there to be infants that need relationship, that need nourishing, that need movement. I see what you're saying. So it feels like a, 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 a lowest level scaffolding or something. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. To thrive, what is necessary to thrive? And, you know, I would just say that in the language that I've created, then you your approach would be under the um, psychotherapeutic approach, which is as an attachment therapist. Um, and as an attachment therapist, what mechanisms basically help you achieve and foster some of the basic tenets in uh, attachment theory. What are some of the tenets in attachment theory? And then what are those that could possibly relate to the physical laws? And what are parts that relate to the psychological laws? And what are the parts that relate to the aesthetic movement laws? And then um, look at specifically which mechanisms would relate to those laws. As Winnicott talked about and that, he was the main theorist when I was first in the field. And Winnicott was the first um, theorist that um, really I learned about that appreciated art, you know, in Jung, obviously as part of the um, psychotherapeutic approach. And so where, is good handling and holding as basically 
a mechanism. And I would say, once again, it's in aesthetic mutuality. And aesthetic mutuality is all about that relationship. I don't know if that's helpful or. Yeah. Um, what, what I, what I got from that, that felt helpful was, um, the model that brings in, Hey, there are natural laws. There are psychological laws and there are aesthetic laws. And part of the development of an approach as a dance therapist is, is referencing those. I think that that's what we have probably talked about because we've talked about you know, bartending, which is very functional, that's laws, you move it, and then it develops, or you don't move it, and then it doesn't. Well, what you're starting to confuse a little bit are beliefs and assumptions. And so it becomes a law, if it's something that is proven, now, use it or or lose it, then you'd have to, you'd have to go into biomechanics and or like you say, um, probably physical therapy development and pull some of those tenants and see what laws they use. And that's where I think our work is both beautiful and also challenging because it's so broad. Because we have the laws we can borrow from, you know, matter and biology and, you know, like the somatics that neurobiology, Caldwell, yeah, yeah, that Caldwell references so strongly, and we have the laws from psychology, like you know, compensation, adaptation. Some of those are basic laws in psychology, and then we have the natural laws of aesthetics, which are beauty. I do reference some of the laws that are really influential to me, like the laws of symmetry operations. So each of us as dance movement therapists, because we don't have all these laws, you know, definitely worked out yet, need to look at, you know, where are our influences coming from? And they span the field of psychology, the field of biology and movement mechanics, as well as the field of the arts. And that's why it's hard. And that's, that's the work I think we have to do that Christine started and, um, you know, um, Mm. it's not easy. So, you know, oscillation and balance, feedback loops and energy conservation, you know, effort and recovery that I would say is a strong influence in my work. Stability and mobility, there again, that would be a law. You can't have continual effort without recuperation. We know those are, you know, biodynamic laws. And so those are things that I know a lot of us from Columbia College influence our practice because we studied those laws in understanding Laban. One of the examples I give in the book of the laws is um, the one of, you know, uh, effort modulation and the laws of proximity, things that are are closer together are going to be easier to understand and move than things that are farther away. So proxemics is a very strong law that influences my practice with people because I have a lot of people do effort modulation and I look at that as the law of proxemics. 
that's how I feel we need to move in our field to be able to more professionally articulate what we do by pinpointing some of these laws and basic principles and tenets from biology, psychology, movement mechanics, and um, as, and art aesthetics. Right. It's an integration of so much. And that is such a challenge to do within one person, um, much less, you know, the field. But I appreciate the call to um, be in conversation about this and be writing about it and be thinking about it. You've been the director of a dance therapy program. So you've nurtured so many dance movement therapists into the field. Do you, yeah. Have you ever counted how many students you saw? Well, it was um, with the certificate in Laban movement analysis and in the movement pattern analysis that came in briefly, it was just under 400 around there. And um, so in, I started at Columbia in 1996, um, adjunct, I taught one class and then um, became the director in 97. The department closed the program for admissions in 2017. So I was chair for 19 years. And um, during that time, yeah, it was just under 400, 380 or something like that, I think. I was working towards an articulation of this chapter really since 2012. So some of this was presented to the students, but not in its completed form. And I know during that time, it was harder for me to teach the, um, you know, some people call pioneers, which now has become a, a, a term that's frowned upon in our discipline. But, um, you know, I just, my heart wasn't into teaching, even though I highly respect Trudy Shoup and Marion Chase and all the work that they started because they're creating, you know, fostered our creating. However, what had happened is that, you know, I could tell our students were rebelling. They didn't want to hear about these people from so long ago that they didn't feel were, were culturally relevant. And I understood that. And, you know, I feel badly because I, I think my, my teaching suffered as a result of that because I knew it wasn't cutting it for where we were in today's world. And um, even though we're required to teach um, those founding few um, their methodologies, um, now it's, it's time to move on, you know, present them and, you know, maybe have part of the class on a three credit course, but we have to move on to this work that's happening that Sabine is doing, that Caldwell's doing, and that I think I'm doing to make our work understandable and deeper. Um, and that's what happens in any profession or discipline. We evolve and, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And I hope, you know, that we're more inclusive in what we're doing. Um, and at the same time, I hope people can understand that, you know, it had to start somewhere in modern society. 
you know, we know tribal dances and we know dances as old as civilization itself. And I'm not dishonoring that in any way. I mean, I love traditional and obviously folk dance and character dance, as I've already said, but um, we had to start somewhere. And I, I don't want to in any way disown that. I want to honor that and move on, you know, and not move on, which means to move away, move on through growth and in further inclusivity. And, um, and I think by creating this language and this scaffolding, I'm hope I'm hoping it's more inclusive for everybody. Oh, I loved that. What you just said. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was really oh, wonderful. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you to Susan Imus for wrestling with these questions and bringing her mind to bear on them and offering that as a gift to the field. Thank you to Josie Rothwell for the opening credits and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing credits. And thank you to my listener for joining me in the return to embodiment. I feel